Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Philip Hamburger, professor of law at Columbia Law School and also president of something called the New Civil Liberties Alliance. Uh, among, he's been with us before, a couple years ago, on a previous book. Uh, among his many writings is, Is Administrative Law Unlawful? And a new book now called Purchasing Submission, Conditions, Power, Freedom, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Hamburger. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you. Uh, First, a question for an administrator. Uh, What is the new Civil Liberties Alliance? (laughs) Thanks for asking. Um, Right, so one hat I wear is as professor at Columbia, but uh, about three or four years ago, I started up a civil rights organization uh, to defend civil liberties against the administrative state, which I've come to view as the most serious threat to our constitutional rights uh, we currently have. And... uh, one way of thinking about it is we're not the ACLU. Uh, we actually defend your civil rights. Um, <laughs> so if, we, if you have interesting cases, bring them to us. Uh, we'll d- we can't promise we'll take all your cases. We only do those that have strategic impact in taking down unlawful types of power. But if we do take your case, we do a pro bono. Nice, nice. Uh, well, let's, you, you know, is there a website? Is there any, sure. any way for people and- to get in touch? Right. It's at nclalegal.org. I think it's .org. Um, if you just search NCLA, uh, you won't find a basketball team. You'll find us, <laughs> about 20 of us in Washington, uh, fighting to defend constitutional rights. Okay, so nclalegal.org. .org. Okay, very good. I think that's it. Uh, all right, to the book, Purchasing Submission. Now, right at the opening... You, we, we sort of need a little bit of, of, of explanation. You call, quote, the purchase of submission, unquote, is, quote, a mode of power, but one that is poorly understood by Americans today, however much they are consciously or unconsciously affected by it. What's going on there? Right. So we have a, a constitutional mode of governance. Uh, the Constitution establishes an elected Congress to make laws, and a court system to adjudicate violations. And that's how we're meant to be governed constitutionally. They impose obligations on us, and we have to live up to it, and the courts hold us to account. But government, of course, likes to evade its limits, and so it created a new path of governance in the past century or so in which administrative agencies create the rules. They're unelected, but they create the rules, and they, they're not really judges, but they adjudicate violations. And that, at least, is a pale imitation of the constitutional mode of governance. But it's an irregular path of governance. It turns out there's, a, there's another irregular path of governance, which is a little more devious. Uh, 
instead of pretending to make rules that bind us in the way of the administrative state, um, agencies can give us money or privileges, like a license, and then say, but you only get the license under certain conditions if certain facts exist. And this For is example, the purchasing. Right. And so they end up using our money to buy our, purchase our rights and, indeed, to purchase a whole mode of regulation. Uh, so it's, it's, it's more complicated than the other regular mode of control, but it's just as serious, if not and, more so. And your book is an exposition of many examples of this process at work, and you, you dig deep into some of the constitutional issues uh, raised by it and really how the, how the public is uh, trying to cope with right. But it, you know, it's funny. We, um, I think the public now gets that there is an alternative, irregular mode of control, the administrative state. But not even political theorists have really sufficiently understood that conditions are a mode of power. Uh, there is legal doctrine on conditions, and, but they're viewed as sort of technical, a technical question. How can your right be, a constitutional right be constrained if you're just being given money, if it's a gift to you? Uh, but what people haven't realized is it's not just a a threat to rights. It's an entire system of control, of regulation, that is substituting itself for the constitutional method. You spoke of this as really how old? A hundred years old? I mean, I'm the very yeah, early it, beginnings. It, at, at, right, at most hundred years old. But in fact, um, for practical purposes, it's been a do- it's been increasingly a dominant mode of control since around 1960 or 1970. Okay. Okay. That's when uh, it really accelerates. And since then, the tactic, the purchasing, has been spreading more and more. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, you, you go into ways in which, again, often subtly, the advance of submission. One thing you discuss is, quote, the shift from status to contract. What do you mean by that? Right. So this is a, from status to contract is a phrase used by Henry Sumner Maine 150 years ago to describe the shift from pre-modern to modern societies. In pre-modern societies, hierarchies prevail. You're born into a case. You might be born a serf, and then you live out your life as a serf. Um, but in modern society, uh, contra- con- your contract determines your fate. Uh, you know, after the plague in 1347, English serfs were able then to enter into contracts for free labor because there was such a desire for the labor. And so their, 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 their place in life is not determined by status, but rather by contract. Mm-hmm. It's a slightly oversimplification, but it captures a fair degree of truth. But there's one degree in which status really matters, which is our status as citizens, um, our status as equal individuals under law. And in that sense, no amount of contract traditionally could alter our, our, our status. This is our egalitarian status, and that's worth preserving. The purchase of submission, the use of conditions on various grants and privileges, undermines that equal status we have, um, because it subjects some of us to constraints on rights that others are not subject to. Right. So if the poor are subsidized, as they were under AFIDC, uh, a program in the 60s and 70s and 80s, Um, if the poor are subsidized in a way that requires them to be open to having their houses searched by social workers even at midnight, um, 
suddenly they have a different status altogether. They're not, it's not an egalitarian status because of their poverty. They're being paid to give up their constitutional right against unconstitutional searches. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, this, is, this corrupts the very egalitarian equal status we have as individuals under law. You know, I, this, this, I, hadn't, I hadn't written this down as, as a question I would ask, but today you could not have a contract of the old indentured servitude. That, that, is, is that kind of contract illegal today where you're, you're, you are giving up your status as, as a free citizen for what in the old way was seven years, basically to be, to be a servant, uh, really, really a slave to someone else for a period of time, and that person might give you training in, in a certain craft and would house and feed you. Is that illegal today? Uh, th- there, are, there are severe limits on this. Uh, so, for example, if you go to work for a corporation and acquire confidential information, um, some of the co- if it's genuinely confidential information, that can, you can be limited in your transfer of this after you leave the company, but uh, you, can, you can enter a contract to bar you from working for another company but generally, that might not be enforceable after a while, you know, three hmm. years, perhaps, but perhaps not after that. It will vary place to state to state. But you know, there, there are limits on the degree to which you can um, preclude yourself from taking other employment. Yeah. So that would be something somewhat similar. There's a limit on the alienability of one's, of one's free labor. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, but there's a lot you can alienate such as your freedom of speech or your right to a jury. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, but you, you, you have wanted to distinguish this kind of submission from really what was the subject of that, that previous book on the administrative state. But, but Philip, the, the administrative state is, it, that, that is the body that administers <clears throat> this kind of purchasing, right. correct? Uh, uh, largely, yes, that's right. And so, so part of the book is distinguishing this sort of sort of special activity. Right. So can we? I, so, um, what what is shared across these two modes of control is the class that, that exercises the power. And yeah. you could put this narrowly in terms of agencies or those who run agencies. Uh, put more broadly, this is the power of the knowledge class, uh, the class uh, credentialed with academic. Uh, knowledge, whether it's real knowledge, we can dispute. But the, this is the the knowledge class that sits in these agencies, exercise both types of power. However, there's a distinction, I think, between the admit an administrative regulation. Administrative power is really about rules that pre- that pretend to bind, even though they don't come with consent, and adjudications that purport to bind, even though the judges aren't really independent. And you aren't really judges; you don't get a jury. That's a motive. It imitates law in pretending to bind. This method of control is, as Tocqueville would say, dangerously benevolent. <laughs> it's, it's, it's saying, right. oh, here's some money. Oh, here's a privilege. We're giving you stuff. Aren't we nice? Um, and so it, does, it purports not to bind at all, which is why it seems to escape constitutional rights and allow the government to crush them. But, of course, that doesn't really mean that it isn't an exercise of power, and that's what the book tries to point out. This is power. It's just a subtle mode. Uh, the, you know, the benevolence factor comes into play when you discuss the theory and practice of nudging, right? What, what is, uh, that, that was, that was uh, did Cass Sunstein? 
Yeah, my, my, my former colleague at, at Chicago, Cass Sunstein, wrote a very interesting book called uh, Nudge or Nudging or something like that. And he essentially says, you know, this isn't such a bad idea. If people are poor decision makers in various ways, perhaps we can help them make better decisions by giving them a little nudge. Now, I don't know about you. Um, when I'm on the subway this morning, if someone comes up and nudges me, I don't think I'll really like it. I could call that more like a shove, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. more seriously, it's a mode of manipulation. Yeah. Now, I'm actually not arguing against that in this book, uh, because it seems to me a lot of nudging can be perfectly constitutional. Most conditions are perfectly constitutional. Um, what the book is concerned about are those conditions that become substitutes for regulation or that impinge upon one's rights. And that's... Um, that's a sufficiently more serious question that I don't bother dealing with the question of nudging. And this is, uh, this is not about displacing one's moral authority in making decisions. It's about displacing one's constitutional freedom yeah. uh, to consent to the laws and to, and, and to have one's rights. Uh, you, you acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's a fuzzy line, right, between some sort of basic conditions that the government might lay down for receiving grants and, and awards of different kind, but that there's, there's a point at which we become right in the world, of, in the realm of coercion. Can I, can I give an example? Um, of course. Uh, so uh, suppose the government wants to buy an airplane, and you can put in the contract, we'll pay, pay for it only on the condition it flies. <laughs> this is a perfectly reasonable condition, right? It's not a mode of controlling the public. It's just a limitation when one's going to pay. Uh, now, uh, take an, as an alternative, um, things are known as castration conditions. Uh, so if you're released on parole, as a sec, uh, you're a sex offender released on parole, uh, many states will require, uh, will, will allow you to be released a little early on parole if you... Um, submit yourself to chemical castration, yeah. which is only temporary. You know, you, it all comes back later. But some states, like California, say you can get parole um, and you can avoid the injections, the temporary chemical castration, if you voluntarily submit to permanent surgical castration. Now, the right to bodily integrity is a, is not a fully protected right, but there's something a little disturbing about this. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, Maybe, maybe this, this we can talk. Maybe this violates your constitutional right, and it's not just one's, you know, castration. Let me take some more familiar examples. Uh, churches are now regulated in their speech by 501c3, right? They get the so-called privilege of tax exemption. In exchange, they have to give up their political speech. Yeah. Why is this not an abridgment of the freedom of speech? Uh, universities get money, actual money. Uh, from the government for research on the condition they set up institutional review boards to review research, even research that doesn't touch anyone's body, that's just reading um, and speaking to people. Um, and you're reviewed and can be prevented from publication. Um, and this actually kills large numbers of people, of course, because when you suppress medical knowledge, there are high, high costs. Okay. So uh, we've moved here not away, you know, away from contract into a mode of regulation, and indeed a mode of regulation that constrains one's rights. 
and it leads it, and it, it the danger is it inserts the tentacles of government into private institutions we no longer really have private institutions it's an illusion hmm. churches and universities are meant to be entirely you know intellectually independent devoted to god or to the pursuit of truth but they are controlled in the spe- in their fundamental activities by government so if if you, if you deviate if you you know con- if you work with some other congregants try to work for a bill in congress your pastor will probably tell you to tamper down your speech or do it away from the church and don't mention you belong to the church unless you run afoul of the IRS. Yeah. Many churches have regulations controlling their congregants on this. So private institutions, including churches and universities, are turned into agents for imposing federal controls, even on speech. It's quite frightening. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You spend some time on another example, and that is the fairness doctrine. Uh, what was the fairness doctrine, and what was wrong with it, in your opinion? Right. So the fairness doctrine requ- required, um, uh, as the name suggests, it, re- it required certain fairness in radio programs. Um, I don't want to go into too much detail on this, but uh, sort of a supposed fairness presentation uh, on the radio. And so... The awkwardness, of course, is what that means is when covering public issues, you have to present a reasonable opportunity for presentation of contrasting viewpoints according to the regulation. But what that means is that radio stations are being corralled into providing sort of a homogenized, there's this point of view and that point of view. A radio station might reasonably think, no, we have our own point of view. It might be a radical left point of view or a conservative point of view. It might be religious or ardently secular. Why shouldn't they have a right to express their own point of view? Yeah. Any case, the government itself withdrew this without it going being fully determined. You know, the court supported it, but the government itself withdrew this on the ground that it probably was unconstitutional. Yeah, but, but and and the uh, and the coercion was you're not going to get a license. That's right. If you don't, that's subscribe. right. So it's not just money. People talk about these things as spending conditions, um, but that's not true. Um, there are, there are spending privileges and there are non-spending privileges. And that's also, for example, familiar for familiar from uh, plea bargains. When you when you're when you're told, oh, you get a reduced sentence, the government's not offering you any money or spending. What they're doing is saying we're going to be a little less harsh on you, yeah. but you know we might want something in exchange. Yeah. <laughs> What, what what was the 1987 court case, South Dakota versus Dole? Right, um, right. So there's this 1980s case, South Dakota versus Dole, in which uh, the Department of Transportation, under statute, offers uh, highway construction money to the states. Now, in the first place, this is probably unconstitutional because the federal government is barred from giving money to the states. People have forgotten this, but the general welfare clause is about money. It, you can tax for general purposes, not for state or local purposes. Even Alexander Hamilton believed that. In any case, they're distributing money to the states for highway construction, and it's subject to the condition that 
uh, you, uh, the states have a 21-year drinking limit, which means they have to change their policies on drinking in order to get the highway construction money. There's no connection really between highway construction and drinking age, unless it's some sort of Rube Goldberg you know, connection, well, you construct the highways and people use them, and some of the people who use them then have drunk too much, and some of them might be below age 21, and therefore this connection. It's not a real connection, but the Supreme Court upheld this, um, which means that it became a sort of license for the government to direct state regulations, to impose a national regulation through the states by means of conditions. If Congress had attempted to adopt a national drinking age on its own, one, that would have been politically opposed. Two, that would have probably been held unconstitutional. Certainly, there would have been pretty serious litigation over this. They do it through a condition, and the court says, yeah, whatever. And, and Philip, there have been no challenges to that law for, for 33, 34, five years? Well, we have, a, we have a Supreme Court decision on it. That's a high burden. Hmm. And, but the, re the real danger is not the drinking age. The real danger is we have, we have a law filled with pretenses. Uh, for example, the, the constitutionally, federal government cannot direct state policies or direct regulation, and the anti-commandeering doctrine recognizes that. But the judges have taken the name anti-commandeering so seriously they think it requires coercion, which means you can, government, federal government can go ahead and commandeer the states as long as it does it through conditions. And the Supreme Court won't do anything. Only in the Sebelius case did Judge Justice Roberts say, well, maybe there's some circumstances in which you can't use conditions. But that's not much of a limit. So the Supreme Court has been quite remiss. Um, and this is, this is and just getting back to the NCLA, uh, the reason I started the New Civil Liberties Alliance is because people were not adequately litigating against these irregular modes of control, administrative power, and these conditions. And conditions are very much among the targets we want to move against because they're perhaps even more dangerous than administrative power. Uh, you, you praise federalism in the book, but are state and local governments getting in on the act of Purchasing submission to? Have you seen? Oh that? yes, everyone. Everyone does it. <laughs> everyone does. <laughs> Look, we're human beings. We like people. We are all corrupt to some degree. We want a little power over others. States do this, uh, but the but the main threat comes from the federal government. And but I'll give you an example of a state version of it that's quite common: uh, zoning laws. Um, many many licensing commissions of all sorts, including zoning boards, will give you permission to do something subject to conditions, and the conditions have become a mode of regulation. What's particularly worrisome in the, in the case of zoning um, is that the licensing is used as a mode of extortion. Um, so uh, zoning boards will say, yeah, yeah, you can get permission, but only when you convey some of your property for the use of the public. So that's a way of stealing people's property. The Supreme Court has recognized this in cases such as Nolan and Dolan. Um, but they treat it as a takings problem, not as a, an extortion problem. And the problem of extortion is actually quite broad. And sometimes it's personal. For example, there's a case uh, <laughs> that we did not pursue, but it was brought to our attention, in which a, zoning board, a member of a zoning board simply said, um, oh, you want to develop that property? That's fine. When $350,000 is deposited in this office, 
we'll do business. <laughs> but you know, you think that's absurd and just comic, but it's not. The problem is, licensing as a mode of regulation lends itself to this. Yeah. Because you yeah. need permit. You the government doesn't have to prove anything against you. It just doesn't. It just can delay, and and you're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember the example uh, of race to the top money, which under the Obama administration, it was money given to the states for education, big awards, and the states had to compete for it, but they had to adopt Common Core in order to qualify <laughs> for that right. for that money, and that's just a simple bribe. Philip? Yes. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. So yes and no. Maybe not. It maybe. is a bribe. <laughs> They're using our money to corrupt us. Yes. But, I, I, but the point of my book actually is to go a step further than that. It's terrible that it's a bribe. But what's even more worrisome from a political theory and constitutional law perspective is that it's a new mode of governance. You know, if you think about classical accounts of government, there's monarchy and there is and there is uh, and there's a republic. And then this sort of middle, this this thing develops administrative power. The Prussians develop it, in which the monarch works through a bureaucracy to issue his orders. Instead of issuing his own proclamation, he has some one below him do it for him, and that's bad enough. But here we have yet another mode of corrupt uh, of governance, which is is that we are we are governance we're governed by payments to us or yeah. privileges for us. And it's sufficiently complicated. We don't quite understand what's happening. And meanwhile, the people controlling it are just laughing up their sleeves. Yeah. But, but you, you said at the beginning that uh, awareness is spreading. Yeah. Uh, are, are, are some governors trying to fight right. back against this? Right. So the, one of the most atrocious examples of this was earlier this year, Congress offered money to the states subject to the condition that they not lower their taxes. Now, this, this ordinarily would be a common, commandeering of state policy, but because they think they can get away with it because it's done through a condition, not a direct order. Yeah. Fortunately, some courts have begun to recognize, and NCLA is litigating some of this too, a number of people are, um, and fortunately some courts have begun to recognize that this may be unconstitutional. So that, it's gone to such an extreme, there's beginning to be some pushback. When you uh, phrase the issue the way you have, we've got to understand this as a little different from the administrative state, a little different from just the imposition of regulations and, and penalties. Right. Uh, when you're able to frame it in this way, do you believe that you really have the courts on your side on this? <laughs> Um, right. So the, the point is essentially it's the same people, those bureaucrats, but it's just a different tool. Rather than con directly constraining you, they're trying to entice you into an unlawful situation. Um, I think some judges get it. And interestingly, um, there is some precedent against my position on this. Uh, but on the whole, the courts have not recognized the problem. They just haven't seen it. And what that means is there are, there are large swaths of this problem which are not governed by precedent one way or another. Hmm. So there is a real opportunity to go to the courts and say, look, you haven't considered this problem before. Let's, let's try to get it right. So I, I, I have had some positive feedback already on this, and I think um, the judge – putting yourself in the position of a judge, the judges are desperate to try to 
be principled, whatever, they may have different principles, but they are all principled and they want to get it right. Uh, and they're not always sure how to do that. And particularly in a case such as condition, subjects as conditions, they know it's difficult. They don't quite understand it. Yeah. So my hope is that if a book comes along and in a fairly straightforward, simple way, exp- un- sort of unfolds the problem in a way that's clear and useful, that they may actually see the light. You know, given they'll see a problem. The key is first key is to see, as you said, being being can- candid about issues is key. Just to see the problem that's a matter of regulation, I think, will be very helpful. Yeah, given the Trump administration's and Steve Bannon's. Uh, talk about the administrative state and the swamp. Was anyone in the Trump administration good on this issue, or did they not even notice it? <laughs> um, you know, I'm not sufficiently connected in that world to have any strong... But you don't know of that. any... But I, but, well, look, obviously, I think the lawyers understood it. Um, the lawyers all understood this very, very well. Uh, they're trained to understand these things. And they. Uh, so I, I've met some of the lawyers who worked in the Trump administration. They understood the problem. I don't think there was any political will to deal with it. Uh, if you think about what the Trump administration did, they rolled back some particular regulations, but they made no structural changes of much significance. Uh, the NCLA managed to persuade, uh, we petitioned 21 agencies to limit the use of guidance uh, and provide remedies for misuses of guidance. And eventually there were executive orders on this, but they were just then reversed, repealed by the next, reversed by the next administration. Uh, And so uh, what one really needs is to have a president who understands it as a structural problem. I suspect they now do understand this amongst uh, the, the friends of Trump, but one needs to have a president who understands it's structural and responds with equivalent strength. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I mean, you think about what a, pre- a president could do a lot. An attorney general could simply issue an opinion saying that uh, prosecutors should not seek severon deference because it's participating in a violation of due process. The president could issue a proclamation, not an executive order, a proclamation declaring this, that let's say Chevron deference unconstitutional, and then issue a, an executive order ordering prosecutors not to seek it. This is something that a president can do if he understands the presidential role in, in, in taking care that the laws are faithfully enforced as the Constitution commands. Yeah. But you know that, well, that, well, requires, it, that requires legal subtlety. Uh, you know, one of the values of the book is at the end you pri- provide some guidance on resisting submission. But, but last question: uh, Are you, Philip? Are you are you optimistic? You actually you, you, you're you're a little pessimistic about at least the near future on this. Right. Um, so first, it's the book, and then <laughs> optimism, pessimism. Um, right. The the book is designed actually to be useful for lawyers, and at the end it has sort of a checklist so that you. Can, if you have a case involving conditions, you know how to proceed and what arguments you can make and so forth. It's designed to be useful in a very practical way, as well as having a broader political theory outlook. So it combines both the breadth and detail in that regard. I'm personally always pessimistic, hmm. uh, at least in my writing. Personally, I'm optimistic in dealing with people, but you know, that's a different matter. Uh, I, but I don't think that means we should give up. Um, my parents grew up in 
Can I, can I just mention something personal here? Of course, of so course. My, my parents grew up in World War II on different sides of the globe. My mom in Germany and my dad in um, fighting in the Solomons. Um, they could not have been terribly optimistic. The circumstances didn't warrant it. Hmm. And yet, with a bit of struggle, things worked out. Um, and so I think we have to brace ourselves uh, to actually do a little bit of work here. Uh, and that, and that's why I appreciate you're doing this podcast. Um, by talking about these issues, by just being candid, one achieves much of what's necessary. What happens is it's important is not just in the courts, but in people's minds. Um, yeah. I, you must know Solzhenitsyn's Live Not By Lies. Yeah. And Live Not By Lies is a wonderful essay because it's a reminder that a single person telling the truth can make a profound impression. And what we need is for every American simply to recognize the threat to their constitutional liberties. And even if only some of us do that, that will be enough to change the direction on this. So I'm not really, I'm not that pessimistic on this, as you might suppose. The book is Purchasing Submission, Conditions, Power, Freedom. Professor Hamburger, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.